All right, welcome to the Mark series. We're back with the Mark series. This is the verse-by-verse study through the entire Gospel of Mark. I am Mike Winger. I'm a pastor here in Southern California trying to produce free content online to help people learn to think biblically about everything. And today we're thinking biblically about how Jesus can settle some of our theological debates that we have going on. And what's especially interesting about this passage in Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, that's where we are, is that Jesus actually specifically addresses things like the inspiration of scripture, the authorship of Psalm 110 in particular, but speaking of the authorship of the Old Testament, um, he also addresses some other stuff related to eschatology, his own his own coming, first and second coming. And I love highlighting things like that, but there's something else that people might often miss, even though I think it's pretty obvious in the passage. Jesus here does a messianic interpretation of an Old Testament passage. Mean, meaning that this whole like Jesus in the Old Testament thing that I love, that I'm passionate about, that is probably my favorite thing that I've done in Bible study is this, this series I did on Jesus in the Old Testament, that this is something that Jesus did too. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Let's just read through the passage. This is Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. And I'm just going to read it. Then I'm going to lay out a little bit of context for us. Then we're going to go back through it verse by verse, slowly, thoughtfully, methodically, trying to pull everything good we can out of it. Um, thank you guys for joining. <clears throat> if um, if you happen to be watching this video later on in a small group, maybe a weekly home fellowship that's going through this Mark series, I just want to say I'm really encouraged that you guys are going through this this series. I'm blessed to think that that other people are being equipped to have their own home fellowships and gatherings and that I could help be part of that. That's just exciting to me. And of course, people always have permission to play this content for Christian audiences and that sort of thing. I don't care. I don't need anything for you from you. Uh, no, no attention or, or royalties or anything like that. At any rate, here we are, Mark 12 verses 35 through 37. Let me take us now out of Ephesians for a second, which is where we are at the moment, actually with my software. <clears throat> All right, here, Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it? that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So the central topics we're going to cover here, and I'll, I'll highlight them for you because I'm not really so much for trying to keep you on the hook here. I, I want you to know this, right? The central issues is that Jesus is talking about who the Christ is. What's the identity of the Christ? And he's giving commentary on that from the Old Testament. So we get this messianic interpretation, the the, the hermeneutics of messianic uh, interpretation of the Old Testament. And he also talks about how David himself, David is the one who wrote Psalm 110. We'll talk about that. A lot of people don't think that's the case. I think Jesus seems to think it is. And I think Jesus is right. And he also mentions in the Holy Spirit. So this is talking about the inspiration of scripture. David wrote in the spirit. This is this is our normal evangelical understanding of the inspiration of, of scripture. And it seems to be coming from uh, the Lord. <clears throat> then there's this... Um, uh, well, there's more. We'll get there as we go. But the... Um, uh, the other thing I want you to remember is this. In Mark chapter 12, we've had a number of moments where people have challenged Jesus with questions. So it's like the Pharisees had their strike at Jesus with questions and the Sadducees had their strike at Jesus with questions. Then we have a sincere questioner who comes up and he's asking what's the heart of the law and Jesus talks about love, how the center of our morality is love. Um, amazing and beautiful thing there. And then 
finally, Jesus then hits them with his question. Now, what you want to notice, because I know I'll forget to say this later, is in the Gospel of Mark 12, um, it's, it's at that point where the questions stop. And we're sort of getting this like, they had their turn to try to hit him with questions, to, to try to show that he doesn't really know his thing or that they're smarter or better or something. And then when he finally gives his question that is at the center of the identity of Christ, it shuts them all up. That's the idea, right? That they, that they stopped. So we have Jesus sort of having like a victory, so to speak. Um, he's like winning the debate. You might put it that way in a, in a proper fashion, in a good fashion. I think that's meant to be shown here in Mark chapter 12. So let's now dig in and talk about this stuff in more detail. Um, one of the first things you might notice in the passage is that Jesus is teaching in the temple. This is the kind of thing you might just pass over when you're casually reading the scripture. Jesus is teaching in the temple. That's the location he's at. And then the people are enjoying him. The crowd's enjoying listening to him. It's a large crowd. And they enjoy hearing him. Uh, the reason why this is kind of strange is because you know that the leaders who have control of troops in the temple, the Pharisees who have their own guard in the temple that they can command, they don't like Jesus and they want him to die. They want him to stop. But they're not stopping him. And some people might be like, well, why? What's going on here? And I've, I've mentioned this before, but I'll quickly mention it again to give us the context and to show us um, that there's a lot of tension going on. We sometimes read through the, the Bible and it's almost like we lose the drama that's happening before us. And in this passage, there is, <clears throat> at the actual event, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was incredible tension. There's literally leaders in the, in, the, in the facility of the temple that want to kill Jesus. And he's teaching in front of crowds and they don't want him teaching at all. They want, but the leaders can't stop him. And the, the whole idea is this. This is why the crowds enjoy listening to him. Crowds ultimately will, will overrule leaders if enough of them rise up in response to the leadership. Like there's, there's only so much policing that can be done in any community, in any culture. And if enough people rise up, then, then it causes problems. I'm, now, I'm not making suggestions here. <laughs> I'm trying to give us context from 2,000 years ago. It's not so much about any advice for today. I'm not suggesting that. Anyhow, um, <clears throat> get myself in trouble. But the, um, the, the thing is, the crowds ruled ultimately more so than the leaders, even though the leaders are guiding the crowds all the time. There's this weird interplay between crowd mentalities and leaders' direction. And it wasn't until they got Jesus later, they take him by night through a conspiracy. They, they come away from the crowds at night. They find out where he is away from the temple, away from all those people. They take him, they conspire with Judas, then they, then they get him by night. The next time this crowd sees Jesus, he's being condemned by the governor. He's <clears throat> standing condemned by the leadership. He's in the hands of the Romans. And with all their messianic expectations, they're, they're now looking at Jesus thinking, <clears throat> maybe he's not the Messiah, right? Because look, Rome has got him. Like we thought this was our victory coming, but now he's suffering. He's being crucified. Like, so this is a major shift in the crowd's opinion of Christ at that point, because of some of their false expectations of the Messiah um, combined with them now seeing Jesus in that experience. So let's not miss though the main point. <clears throat> Here's the main point of this passage. Who is the Christ? Jesus is asking, who is the Christ? What is the identity? <clears throat> Pardon me, guys. What's the identity of the Messiah? Um, and, and here from the lips of Jesus himself, the identity of the Messiah comes. This is especially significant if you understand that throughout history, especially in, I guess, the 17, 1800s, there were scholars that rose up. And there's many scholars who, don't, who would say the opposite nowadays, of course. But there were scholars who rose up trying to suggest 
that Jesus didn't have this sort of messianic identity. His his understanding of himself wasn't as exalted. Like basically Jesus didn't think he's God with us in the flesh. Um, it's later Christians who kind of put that onto Jesus. And here's a passage where this seems to be refuted in one of many places in Mark that seem to challenge that sort of wrong thinking. So we're going to get into this. <clears throat> now let's look at Jesus's riddle here in Mark chapter 12, um, verse 35. How is it, he says, that the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? Now we know David was the king, major king of Israel and his um, descendant, the son of David, was the Messiah. This is this is something everybody then would have agreed on. There would be no debate whatsoever about it. They're all just, it's common knowledge, right? The Messiah is the son of David. There's these Davidic statements that talk about his son, and we consider them talking also about the Messiah. And then <clears throat> Jesus challenges this. He's not saying here that Christ isn't the son of David. Some people would suggest this, even in commentaries, some commentaries. Um, more, I think, would probably say he's not saying that. Um, no, he's not challenging that Christ is the son of David. What he's challenging is that Christ is only the son of David. He's defeating the idea that Jesus is merely a human, merely a genealogical human being. He's greater than that. He's more than a man. He's more than a human, although he is a human. Then he uses this Psalm 110 verse 1 to build his case. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So here, <clears throat> Psalm 110.1, David's writing, and he, he mentions two lords. The first one is, is Yahweh, Jehovah, right? This is, <clears throat> that's the name of God we have there in, in David's writing. And then the second lord is Adonai. Now, when we get over to, to, the, to the Greek, it's just kurios, kurios, it's Lord, Lord, right? Just like you have it here in the English, it's Lord, Lord. If they said it out loud, uh, if they read the Old Testament passage out loud, they would have read Adonai says to Adonai, right? The, the, the Adonai says to my Adonai because they didn't say the name of God out loud. And so it would have preserved this kind of like um, fuzziness. Wait, the Lord said to my Lord, this almost fuzziness between the identity of God and the identity of the one Jesus is speaking of, you know, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the son of David. <clears throat> so there's kind of a really interesting, subtle thing going on there. That's the focus right here. Now, let's talk a little bit about why Jesus brings this up in the first place. Um, it is a theme in Jesus's uh, teaching and in his ministry in the Gospel of Mark that he's not only coming as the Messiah, but that he's trying to dispel major misconceptions that the Jews and the leadership had about the Messiah. So they had misconceptions in two areas. One of them was in what would the Messiah be doing when he first showed up? And they ignored the sacrificial elements. They ignored the Isaiah 53 stuff, as many Jews nowadays still ignore. And then they also had other misconceptions about who the Messiah was. So his mission, as well as his person, his identity. Jesus has already encountered the missional confusion, and he's dealt with that several times, right? When, when he tells Peter, um, you know, you're right. Yeah, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. You, you've heard that from God. And then he says, and I'm going to be die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer, die, rise again from the dead. And Peter's like, no. And he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. See, this is him dealing with the mission of the Messiah being misunderstood by their culture. And then there's also the identity of the Messiah. They decreased or lowered who Jesus would really be. And Jesus is now trying to undo some of that. So he's kicking against Jewish traditions about the Messiah that are not ultimately biblical and that ultimately 
are like half biblical. It's like they have half the story of the Messiah and not the full story. And this is what he's kicking against. So that kind of gives you the context of Mark. Um, he's done this in multiple times in Mark and he's continuing the same thing. It's a theme in the gospel of Mark. I don't think that we understand the gospel of Mark if we don't see Jesus doing this a lot and in a very strong and purposeful fashion. So keep that in mind as you're studying Mark. And it's interesting because I remember reading Mark years ago, sort of just as like a, can I say, as a Gentile, like, and I didn't notice any of these things, right? Because you're mostly reading, thinking, I'm just looking at the words of Jesus, looking for encouragement today. Um, and there is a place for that. I don't want to deride that. I'm not going to discourage people from doing that. You should do that. But that's not the limit, right? That's not the limit. There, the scripture is a masterpiece and there is brilliance on every page. And as we invest our time and energy and we hopefully study it really well, as somebody, you know, spends many, many hours in the, in the text and in the word of God and comparing it with other scriptures, it's then that you come out with all these like nuggets. It's kind of like you went into the mountain, you dug out the gold nuggets and now you can bring them to your study. And that's hopefully <clears throat> what I get to do every week. So this is a theme in, in, in the gospel of Mark and Jesus's ministry. He's like, you don't get the Messiah. You have false expectations. They're deeply ingrained. They're definitely insufficient. And here's an application moment for us. Their false beliefs about the Messiah, which were partly right, but they were missing important truths. Those beliefs about the Messiah were so ingrained that when they heard the truth about the Messiah, he became offensive to them. Remember the gospel is an offense to the Jew. This is this is the response that, that the typical Jewish, obviously the early church was Jewish, right? But the typical Jew, <clears throat> when they heard the gospel of Christ, they would be offended because the idea of their Messiah being crucified and that they're not good enough and they need they need faith in him for salvation. Um, this is this was offensive to them. And here's our application. You and me, we have to be sober and honest about this. Like I might have traditions in my own heart I've just grown up with, and I don't maybe know how to tell the difference between what scripture's teaching and what traditions I've got, that maybe I have some extra biblical stuff or sub biblical, like I'm accurate to a point, but I'm missing half the story. Like that really may be happening in my own heart right now. And I want to make sure that I'm open to being corrected and open to being teachable. And that I'm not just offended that someone does it differently than me. From a young age, I remember thinking, and maybe some of you would identify with this, and I'm going to sound ignorant here, but that's because I was, okay? So, um, <clears throat> but from a young age, I remember thinking that not only was my church right in, in not only the core beliefs, but in pretty much everything they believed, it didn't occur to me that, that as I was a, a teenager first, you know, learning the gospel and learning the Christian teaching, um, it didn't occur to me that they might have stuff wrong. It just didn't occur to me. Right? Like I just figured they're probably right. Like it rarely did that even occur to my mind. And the um, the problem is this, is that I thought not only did we have the information right of facts about Christianity, but we also had every other detail probably was right. Like the way we did youth ministry was probably the right way to do it. The order of service of like how much worship and how much study and how much prayer and how much this and this and all the different elements of service. The liturgy, the the format of how you do your service and what you do and don't do. Do you do a scripture reading? Well, that's how you're supposed to do it. You don't do it. That's how you're supposed to do it. This stuff was a lot of like tradition that I was importing into my um, committed Christian beliefs. If Jesus teaches us something about tradition, it's at least recognized that it's tradition. The, the particular worship songs I use, the order of service I have, these types of things, the style of ministry with youth ministry versus adults ministry versus this, these are a lot of traditions. 
And that doesn't mean they're bad. It just means I'm not going to hold to them as tightly as I hold to core doctrines of the Christian faith. That's just a healthy thing. I want to have my eyes open. I want to, I, I just want to get to, the, here's a mature Christian. It's not, you're not mature because you have no tradition and you're only biblical. Like maybe you're that way, but good luck. I'm probably not that way. Um, I think a mature Christian is this. I recognize the difference between my traditions and scripture. And at least I recognize when I have a tradition and I think it's useful. I even like it, but it doesn't mean that it's biblical because I'm willing to admit when I don't see a connection between a clear teaching of scripture and something that I've sort of held traditionally. That's really important and it's very healthy to have. doesn't mean you even have to stop those traditions. You just don't teach them as the commands of God. And it will keep us from being in the place they were in where they, they found biblical teaching offensive because they had no difference between their tradition and scripture. So this, I think, all that context, knowing how offended they were by the idea of what the Messiah would do and of who he was, that it's God with us, it helps us see why Jesus words this question strangely. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey guys, the Messiah is also God. I just want you to know like, he doesn't do that. He words this question very strangely. And he says like, um, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Then he quotes the scripture and then says, in what sense is he his son? Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, some scholars will say that this is actually where Jesus denies that the Christ is the son of David. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Look at the context. Context saves us from scholars sometimes. Uh, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Jesus isn't denying the sonship. He's he's denying the um, limiting the whole identity of the Messiah to being a son of David, and that's all he is, is the son of David. So in what sense is he his son? Well, he geneal genealogically comes from David, but we know from scripture that he's also before David, that Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, that we became, we begot his, or we uh, beheld his glory, that th this is God with us. Now, um, let's, let's, uh, Support this some more because I know it's in commentaries and I don't know which commentaries you guys read, but if you read a commentary that suggested that son of David is, is something Jesus rejects, well, that's that, that's definitely not true, not even in the context of Mark. Uh, as a in, a in a bigger scope, we've looked at just these verses, which I think is enough to refute it, but we'll give you more. So earlier on in Mark, Jesus has just accepted the title son of David from the blind man. And this is significant because when the blind man sees Jesus, actually he does see Jesus, but not right away. So when the blind man encounters Christ, he hears that, that Jesus is coming. He calls him son of David. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps calling out and they're telling him to be quiet. Jesus actually responds. He heals the man. And here's where it's unique. He lets this guy, this is on his way out of Jericho, right near Jerusalem. He lets this guy follow him. It's the first healing where he actually allows the person to follow him and he doesn't silence them. Because he knows he's heading to the cross here, okay? This is, it's, he doesn't need to keep as many secrets now because he's going to get crucified. These secrets are going to be the things that crucify him. And so he allows the man to, to come with him. And I think it's a very simple step to say that the man was continuing to proclaim, I, I called on the son of David and he healed me. He's the son of David. So he was telling everyone Jesus is the son of David. Jesus seems to accept this. Then in Mark 11, he goes into Jerusalem. How does he enter Jerusalem? To the shouts of, Blessed is the coming of king of our father, David, right? Hosanna in the highest, Mark eleven ten. So they're calling out that Jesus is the descendant of David. He's the coming Davidic king. And Jesus orchestrated that on purpose. So he's already affirmed he's the son of David. This is not something Jesus is denying. 
He's saying it's not enough. I'm more than the son of David. This is either a hugely arrogant claim or it's an incredible revelation about the identity of Christ that he is greater than they uh, were expecting, greater than they were going to see. Now, I get excited at the idea of like a Jewish person reading the Gospels. I feel like they're written for the Jews more than they're written for the Gentiles in a sense, and it's at least for their, them to understand it more easily. And I'm excited at them reading it because I feel like the same the same unbelief and the same obstacles that kept many first century Jews from coming to Christ are the same obstacles that keep many modern Jews from coming to Christ. It's the same uh, complaints, the same false expectations, the same traditions. But the Gospels were written to deal with exactly those traditions and expectations. And in many ways, Mark does this. So I'm excited about the idea of, uh, of a Jewish person reading the Gospels. And they'll see what a Jewish book these things are. I mean, these are this is a Jewish book from a first century written by Jews who were following a Jewish rabbi. Maybe they should just check it out. <laughs> so... Um, so what is Jesus doing there? Um, again, he's challenging that that all the Messiah is, is the son of David. In, in other words, to put it succinctly, he will not allow a limited Christology. The Christology, Christology of Jesus, yes, he's the son of David, but he's much, much more. Jesus is here fixing the distorted and limited Christology or messianic expectations of the Jewish thinking of the time. And even now it needs to be fixed. There's never going to be an end to groups that rise up that try to de-deify Jesus Christ, to take away the true nature of Christ that, that are going to imply that we shouldn't honor the Son just as we honor the Father, that we shouldn't worship him, that, that Christ isn't clearly God with us as scripture says. So even now, uh, we need this stuff today. So here, here it is from Jesus' own works, words. And um, what is he implying what is he implying then with Psalm 110? This is, I want to I handle this delicately. I'm going to build a case for the deity of Christ in this passage, but I want, you to, I want you to build it with me slowly. I don't want you just to assume Mike's right, the deity of Jesus is here in this passage. Um, I'm going to build it in a more careful fashion. So the, the, the place I get the deity of Christ from is this, is this statement right here. Uh, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay, so... The, the Messiah, the son of David, is the Lord of David, is David's Lord in some sense. Um, he's going to sit at, at God's right hand until the Father's right hand, until he puts his enemies beneath his feet. And then David calls him Lord. Jesus says, so in what sense is he his son? Okay, now, before we talk about the deity of Christ, let's just say this. Minimally, minimally, uh, at, at minimum, Jesus is saying here that he is more than just the son more than just a human descendant of David, that he's greater than David. Now, that alone is a huge deal. To be a first century um, Jew who's coming, even, even fulfilling prophecy, like I don't think John the Baptist would say he was greater than David. I don't think he would have made a claim like that. But, but here he's saying, I am greater than David, but he's doing more than that. He's suggesting this is what scripture has always proclaimed, whether or not you've acknowledged it. It's a very big deal. Now, it's even a bigger deal when you realize that culture. In the Jewish culture, like, you never would say that your son was greater than you. Like, you would not call your son Lord. It would be preposterous to them. Like, it's not just, like, in our culture, it would just be weird. Like, imagine if your son was your boss, and you're like, okay, boss, it's just awkward and strange, but it's at least conceivable. <laughs> not in their culture. No, your, your, your son, your grandkids, your great, 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 great grandkids, they're never greater than you. This is the opposite um, of what it really is. And so he's more than the descendant of David. That's that's the bottom line. But I think in context of the gospel of Mark, 
this is saying that Jesus is divine. Because what's consistent with him being greater than the son of David is him being actually God with us. Let me uh, give you guys a couple examples. And I could go to the epistles. I mean, I could just say, hey, the, the, the early epistles in, in the New Testament, many of them were written. Uh, we have sections of the epistles and whole epistles written before Mark was written. It seems anyways, if you have, especially if you have a later dating for Mark, as, as most liberal scholars would all have a later dating, I think. So then they would say that these epistles from Paul were all written before Mark. And what's funny about that is that the deity of Christ is even more clear in those epistles. Now, why? I guess I'm getting the cart before the horse. But my point here to tell you guys is this. These same scholars will sometimes suggest that the deity of Jesus was a doctrine that came later in the first century. Like late first century into the second century. We're getting the deity of Jesus slowly cropping up over time. But yet in our earliest Christian writings, we have the deity of Christ already in place already in place. And so we have the gospel of Mark being written to a community of people who already understand that Jesus is God, right? This is already firmly entrenched in the Christian's viewpoints. Jesus is God. And why is that significant? Because when they're reading it from that lens of thinking Jesus is God, the first century readers of Mark would have taken him being greater than David as a reference to his deity. Do you see that? I'm suggesting that the original readers would have seen a reference here to the deity of Christ. But there's more that we can do to build this case. Because right, just the phrase Lord doesn't, it, it implies it perhaps, but it doesn't solidify it. I'm, I want to make that case stronger. So in the context of not just the first century, but in the context of the gospel of Mark, it also supports the deity of Christ. And why do I say that? Well, let's look at Mark 1. Just as a reminder, there's tons of stuff about the deity of Jesus in Mark, but I'll give you guys a little bit here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. This is verse one, chapter one of Mark, proclaiming that he's the son of God, not that it's the son of David. He is the son of David, but he's the son of God. From the very beginning, the whole context of Mark is about Christ being more than they ever thought he'd be doing different things than what they expected him to do. But then it goes on in Mark one, verses two and three, and it quotes Isaiah 40, verse three, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, Make his path straight. Now in, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. It's Yahweh who's coming in this verse. Yet in Mark, it's John who prepares the way for Jesus to come. So Jesus is the coming of Yahweh who's coming to his temple. But there's other places too. Um, when Jesus heals the demoniac, he tells them, he tells the demoniac, go into, into your towns, right? Go into those places and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. P very probably a reference to God when it just says the Lord in that kind of context in the, in the Greek. So tell them what great things God has done for you. And then in the next sentence, it says that he went out and told them all what great things Jesus had done for him. So we're purposely getting this sort of um, muddying between God and Jesus and even in places, clear implications of the deity of Christ. Another one would be Jesus walking on the water. This is one of my favorite sections of Mark for the deity of Christ. And Jesus walks on the water and this connects. It's even a quote from the, the book of Job. Now in the book of Job, God walks on the water in, in this poetic statement in Job. He walks on the water, but he's inaccessible. He walks past Job and Job can't get to him. He can't call him over. He can't access God at all. But in this same section that's quoted in the New Testament in Mark, Jesus walks on the water as though he'll pass them by, but then he turns and he comes to them. Do you see in Job, we have God who's far away. In Jesus, we have God who is with us. And it just, oh, it just blows my mind. The beauty and the brilliance of 
of this. It's, it's amazing stuff. So in the context of Mark as a whole, the greater, the sense in which the, it, which Jesus is greater than being just the, the descendant of David is that he's God. That's the context of Mark. So then that would be what this verse is teaching as well. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a quick examination of Psalm 110 because this is the verse Jesus quotes in Mark 12. And it's also actually the verse that is quoted. It's the New Testament verse. It's the Old Testament verse that's quoted more than any other verse in the New Testament. So it's like the New Testament's favorite Old Testament verse is Psalm 110 verse 1. And here it's it's an intimation in the Old Testament of, of the, the deity of Jesus um, and the Messiah. Really amazing stuff. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This again, in, in and you can, you can see it in most translations if you didn't know this. When they put capitals for L-O-R-D and the O-R-D are in little caps. That's because it's like the actual name of God there in the original language. Well, and those debates on how to pronounce that name because they don't carry the, the vowels aren't there. So it's just the consonants. So it's like, you know, Y-H-V-H would be like, a, you know, or Y-H-W-H, uh, however you want to say it. So Yahweh or Jehovah, th this is, this is what's there. But then the second word Lord, right? You'll notice it's lowercase O-R-D because that's the word Adonai. And I mentioned this before, but I just want to mention it again. Uh, in spoken Aramaic or in, in the Greek, basically in the first century when they're reading this out loud, as most Jews would hear it read out loud, they will not read the, la the divine name. Every time they have the divine name, they will instead say Adonai. So when they're hearing this verse, they would hear, the Adonai says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it would become even like a stronger correlation that's going on there. Then what follows next are two verses about the kingdom of David's Lord, who is the coming Messiah. This is about the kingdom, the nature of, of, the, of the kingdom Jesus is going to rule. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy away, array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. This is a very challenging section. I'm going to come back to it in a second. I'm just going to give a brief overview of Psalm 110 because this whole psalm is messianic and amazing. Okay, so the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. This means that this, this coming son of David, this is going, he's not only David's Lord, he's also David's descendant who will sit on David's throne because a scepter is the ruling authority. It represents royal power. And so um, this connects to, say, Genesis, where it says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh has come. We're, you know, because we have all these different messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and they're all connected with similar themes. Um, he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies, which is to say that they're going to try to stop him, but they won't be able to. They won't be able to stop the kingdom of Christ, um, no matter how much they fight against it. Then it has this, this description of the people of the Messiah, the Messiah's followers, which includes me, which includes you. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. And that speaks of the nature of Jesus' kingdom is that we, we're free volunteers, right? We serve him out of love and out of obedience, not out of fear, out of love, not out of uh, guilt, out of adoration, out of, out of appreciation and gratitude. This is, this is why we serve God. And this is, the, this is just a normal thing for Christians. You know, you get saved, you know the gospel of Christ. You just want to serve God. Like you crave doing something for the Lord. Lord, I want to do something for you. I want to live for you. I owe you my whole life. And I know I would never even try to repay you, Lord, but I just want to give you everything. And, and it's beautiful that this is in Psalm 110. I mean, this is, you know, a thousand years before Jesus shows up. And it's a description of the nature of those who serve and love him and know him. And it's, 
it's encouraging. It's a good reminder to us that if you're currently serving the Lord and, and it's not a free volunteer thing, something's wrong. Right? If you're serving and you're doing things because you just you have to, it's grudgingly. Well, the Lord doesn't want you to give grudgingly even of your time. Um, he wants you to be a cheerful giver, one who does so freely volunteering. And that's actually pretty important. Uh, I've noticed in ministry that it, it does happen over time that we just kind of get, I don't know, we get sour, we get old, we, we, we just stop caring about why we were, we're originally doing things. And we start thinking about how much entertainment we get out of the things that we're doing and stuff. There just ends up being some unhealthy things that can go on in the heart of a believer. This is a great reminder. I volunteer freely. Lord, I'm doing this because of the cross. I'm, I, I'm here at the church early showing up to help out with this. I'm over here helping assist my neighbor. I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of somebody who's poor and doesn't have the, the funds. I'm, I'm giving to them, whatever it is. I'm doing these things because I love. It's not just because it's a duty. It's a, I'm a, I want to volunteer freely. Then in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. This is actually a, a passage that's difficult to interpret and difficult to translate. And so I'm going to offer you my thoughts on this. Okay, I could be wrong. Here's my opinion on this, this, um, this verse. I think the whole verse is talking about the followers right? Your people volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, I think that's the followers. We're the ones that are in holy array. I think it's because we live in holiness. We walk in holiness. So we're, we serve out of love and we walk in holiness and love and holiness. That's like the whole theme of First Corinthians right there. And these are, the, these are, these are uh, two sides of the same coin, really, because holiness is just love towards God expressed ultimately. And you're, you're um, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Okay, so here I'm going to paint a picture. This is a very poetic thing. I might understand this. Let me know what you think. So here Jesus um, is described as being the, the one who comes and he's going to reign in his kingdom. And then we're describing those who follow him, right? They're volunteers. They follow freely. But the way it's being described, it's like the picture of the sun rising in, in Israel somewhere. And there's a field, say there's a field full of grass. And there's dew all over the grass. And so the sun's glittering off a million spots and, and, and droplets of dew. And that's what the followers of the Messiah are like. They're like a field of volunteers, like the gathering of all of those who will serve him, gather together and their holy array. It's like the shining of the sun off the dew. Sort of we're reflecting the, the goodness and love and, and holiness of God in our own lives. I think that's what it is. I think that's how we're like the do. I think that there's a bunch of us. We're gathered early morning to get up and serve the Lord kind of thing. And that it's just a picture of um, of the followers of Christ. Um, it's, it's a generous picture of the church. It's a picture of the church that maybe you feel like you don't see sometimes. Um, but I would say this. Um, our goal is to seek to be that, not just to look around and see if everybody else is doing that. Then we have in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And you know what, you guys, I have, there's an ocean of wonderful, neat tidbits and tasty trifles in the issue of Melchizedek and how that is a picture of Christ. And I have a video on that. If I didn't link it in the description, I'll put it in after this stream. I'll put the Melchizedek video, a link there. If you guys want to check it out, I'll just say it's, it's neat. There's a whole chapter in Hebrews dedicated to just that. And, um, it's really cool stuff, but I'll, but I'll move forward for the sake of time. Verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter Kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore he will lift up his head. 
Okay, so this is the Messiah coming in violent victory. This is speaking of ultimately the second coming of Christ. This is this is like in Daniel's vision where there's there's a rather the, the vision the dream that's in Daniel recorded in Daniel, but where there's the statue that represents all these different kingdoms of the world, and then a rock comes and destroys the statue, and the rock's not made with hands because it's a kingdom that's not of this world, Jesus's kingdom, and then it fills and the rock fills the it grows to fill the whole earth because it's a picture of the unstoppable final growing glorious kingdom of Christ. But sometimes we want to ignore that this this rock comes and smashes. Right? Like Revelation talks a lot about judgment because there's a lot of judgment coming. And there is a lot of wrath and judgment coming according to scripture. Um, as Christians, we're challenged nowadays on whether we're going to be embarrassed about God's wrath or whether we're going to be rightfully warning others about God's wrath. And that's that's <clears throat> that's the challenge I think we're facing today. One of the many challenges we face today. Um, the wrath is coming and it's right and appropriate. God is entirely appropriate to smash the nations that have been rebelling against him and, and causing all kinds of wickedness and harm. He's entirely right in judging me for my sin. And I do better to just humbly repent and come to Christ rather than to shake my fist at God. And it's funny how some people are so wrathful in their hatred of God's wrath. And it's just the lack of self-awareness that goes on there is scary. So Jesus takes over. That's it. And then finally in verse 7, it has this very interesting phrase. Again, I'm going to give you my best guess at what this means. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. Drinking may refer, might refer to a ritual where a new king would go to the spring of Gihon and he would drink water from it, like as part of a ceremony of him being installed as king. So he would be installed and he would like on a procession, he would go to the spring and he would drink. And it's kind of like saying, he's going to be the king, you can't stop him. He's going to be installed. And um, that, that's kind of the implication here. Jesus is coming. He's going to be king. No one can stop him. The coming of the Lord. The question is when, not if. And that's the reality of it. Um, then it says that he'll, he will lift up his head. And that is probably a visual of victory. Um, so in the previous passage, he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. And then the enemies are destroyed. And they're taken out. And then he lifts up his head because now he has victory. He's now sitting in his kingdom full of volunteers that are full of holiness and love. And do you get the idea that this, this is the Messiah's kingdom? Now, why do I go through all that? Because I want to make clear that you know this. Psalm 110 is obviously messianic. Like any knucklehead can tell that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm about the coming son of David who is actually David's Lord. Anybody can tell that. You can't even pretend this is about something else. This is obviously messianic. Now, why do I make a big deal about that? Because it appears from our records of history that for like 300 years um, or close to 300 years that rabbis stopped using Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm. Right? Remember I said it's the favorite psalm in the New Testament? Meaning that Christians in the first century all over the place were going to Jewish um uh, synagogues and they were like Psalm 110 Psalm 110 Jesus is David's Lord you know and they were they were proclaiming this and then all of a sudden there's this rabbinic silence where they just don't use Psalm 110 anymore because it's the very verse that proves their messianic theology their Christology is too little is too small and it's a verse that was a favorite of Christians so it's weird that in history we just have this gap right they're just not using the psalm and then they start using it again then some time goes by, probably because the separation between the Christians and the Jews had become so great that they felt like they didn't need to interact anymore. And so they start using that psalm again. So it's obviously messianic, but not when it's teaching you what you don't want to know about the Messiah. 
And this is, of course, the problem with um, modern day rabbinical Judaism is that it's a selective use of scripture and strange uses of scripture. Oftentimes there's weird interpretations that are going on, but here's a place where it's just obviously about Jesus. And I would love to take um, a, a, a Jew there and, and say, hey, who, who is the Messiah? And describe son of David. And I say, but isn't he, isn't he greater than David? You know, and then take him to Psalm 110. I think it'd be a really fun conversation to have. All right, now let's talk uh, briefly about a few other things. In Mark 12, 35, these are these theological things that I mentioned that Jesus is settling these theological issues about the not only the nature of the Messiah, but a few other things as well. Notice that Jesus gives credit to David for writing Psalm 110. Um, now, the majority, as I understand it, the majority of modern scholars would suggest that David did not write Psalm 110. Now, often I agree with the majority of scholars, okay? I'm not, but I, I do like to point out when I have a disagreement with them or when I think that you should disagree with them. And I don't think that should freak you out. It's not every scholar that thinks that. And guess what? We have a reason why we might disagree and it's given here. Um, I know R.T. Franz actually built like a case of why he, he thought, this was forever ago, why he thought Psalm 110 would have been authored by David. But what I'm gonna suggest is there's something else going on in scholarship that this might highlight. And I admit I'm someone on the outside looking in, but sometimes that gives you different perspective. As I look at scholars, as I read what scholars write, I realize that a lot of times in scholarship, um, in many different realms of scholarship, they attempt to be unbiased. Um, that can be problematic because bias, they don't know, it's like they forget what bias even is. So as scholar will be writing and they'll be like, well, Psalm 110, was it written by David? Let's let's use our various standards to try to figure out who we think wrote it uh, based on subject matter and things like this. Well, I mean, it says, you know, David, but okay, but maybe we don't think that that was the original title of the psalm, or maybe it means it was a psalm that was references David. It's a psalm of David, like a Davidic-like psalm or something. But if you were to ask those same scholars, like, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that David wrote it? And then isn't Jesus like, Lord, like, isn't he right? Some of those scholars would actually say, I can't, I can't do that in my scholarship. I can't consider the lordship of Jesus when I'm doing my scholarship. And here I want to say, that's not being unbiased. That's being unbelieving. Because when you do your scholarship, assuming Jesus isn't Lord, that's not unbiased. You've picked a side. And so sometimes scholars will pick the side of ultimately atheism and secularism and naturalism as if that's unbiased. And then they'll do all their scholarship from the perspective of what they feel is unbiased, but is really just a bias of naturalism. And then they come up with conclusions that sometimes disagree with Christian conclusions because it's come from assumptions that are unchristian. But the, the, the weirdest part is that conclusion that that makes them unbiased. That's the thing I would just want to wake them up on and say like, hey, just remember this. Like, that's not unbiased. Like, this is like philosophy thing, okay? Maybe you're a great scholar, maybe you're a great textual critic, but... This is more philosophical in nature. That's not unbiased. That's just naturalistic, right? It, this is like Bart Ehrman, who um, I, I often reference because he has such a huge influence uh, directing people away from the truth of Christ in the world. But he says that in you know if, if a historian, and I'm going to paraphrase, but here's his view. I'm not making this up. Shocked me when I heard it. That if a historian was to find evidence for the resurrection of Christ, they should still not conclude that it happened. Right, because in his view, a historian cannot ever conclude that a miracle happened. See, that's not unbiased. That's blind faith in naturalism. 
And if we allow that to infect our scholarship, then that's that's bad news. Uh, there's someone who I feel doesn't do that, which is Tyndale House Cambridge. I feel like they have some scholars that are not like that. And I appreciate that. It's thoughtful. It's, it's, it's intelligent. It's high-level scholarship. But it's not going to kid yourself into thinking that naturalism is lack of bias. Okay, well, that was like a, my little <laughs> hobby horse for a second on naturalism. Um, now let's look at Jesus's uh, statement here about... Um, not just about David being the author of Psalm 110, because if Jesus is Lord, I, I think we should take his words with heavy weight. He says, David wrote it. I think David wrote it. Uh, if you want to call me naive, I think I'm just being consistent with my worldview. And you can call me naive. You're going to call me naive about something if you're not a Christian, I'm sure. But then he also says this, and let's make it, let's make it even stronger. David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, which is to say Jesus is weighing in on the nature of scripture, this is a bibliology moment of Jesus. He's giving us an answer to the question, is the Bible inspired or is it inspiring? Because progressive Christians sometimes or um, those even in the past 200 years would like to say that the Bible is inspiring or that the Bible's inspired, but it sort of becomes inspired when you read it and when you get like really good information or you, you get, it's more like your application of the Bible is inspired, but not the text itself. But Jesus here weighs in on these weird um, liberal theology positions. And he just says straight up, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus believes that the Holy Spirit guided David's writing and that David's writing, catch this, even the little details, the Lord said to my Lord, that little phrase, the Lord said was significant. Jesus, he, his version of Bible study is looking carefully at the individual words that are chosen and used. Like this is his style of study because of the inspiration of scripture by the Holy Spirit. If you have a, a question about inspiration, I think you should let Jesus answer that question for you. Now, let me go on another slight rabbit trail about this. Let's say that you've come to Christ through apologetics. Now, I love apologetics. I mean, like adore apologetics. I, I've spent countless hours on the topics myself, trying to chase things down, understand it better, trying to ha offer a better defense of the Christian faith. And I think that you can prove Christianity is true without believing the Bible is inspired at all. I think you can absolutely prove it. I think you can show that Jesus is God's son who died for your sins and rose again from the dead. I think you show the resurrection of Christ by only treating the Bible as a historical book, not as an inspired work. Absolutely, I think you can do that. But here's the thing I want people to know. If you've come to Christ, come to faith in Christ through apologetics, if you've come to believe in Jesus through the argument for the resurrection of Christ or through philosophy that says, hey, God exists, and then you get the resurrection, and you go, yep, wow, it's true. What I'm going to suggest is because you believe in Jesus, you should also now believe in the Bible. This is actually something R.C. Sproul used to say. He would say that he, um, he believed the Bible because he believed in Jesus. It wasn't that he believed in Jesus because he believed the Bible. Now, first I heard that, I thought, that's weird. I wouldn't say that. But as I understood it better, I realized, I realized what he meant. Is that if you simply have the Lordship of Christ, if you believe Jesus is real, and he is even remotely who the Bible says he is, right? Like if, if he is the one who died on the cross and rose again, if you believe that, then you should believe that the things that the Bible says are inspired of God, because guess what? That's what Jesus believed. And it's what Jesus proclaimed. And you'd have to build some really big case for some major, massive, intentional alteration of who Christ was. I mean, he was a first century Jew. It's not like he's walking around thinking God didn't inspire the Old Testament. And then he promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the authors of the New Testament, right? The, the disciples, that they would be able to recall the things he said and that sort of thing. This comes from Jesus himself. So what I'm saying is this. You have tons of good reasons to be a Christian, even if you don't believe the Bible. And now that you're a Christian... 
you should really start believing the Bible. And I think this happens naturally in us. I think for most believers, and I'm sorry if it hasn't happened to you, but for most Christians, when you put your trust in Christ, you just start trusting the Bible. It's like a work, the same spirit that inspired those words is now in you. And there's something about how he puts a love for his words in me. Um, it just happens to most of us. And I would hope that it would happen to you, but you have a good logical path from uh, from from maybe a skeptical unbeliever to being a, a believer in Jesus, to being a believer in the Bible and believing in its inspiration. You need to take scripture seriously if you take Jesus seriously. Not only that it's from God, but even in the way it's written. The way Jesus argues with the Bible is based upon like the nuances of how this word is put in the sentence and that sort of thing. So it's very much Bible study type stuff. And the Bible was meant to be read, but it was also meant to be like methodically studied. Um, and there's great treasure in that. Um, now, one other thing I'll mention um, is uh, try to answer this question because as I as I study, I recommend you guys do this too. I read a passage and then I'll just start writing out questions before I really start my major studying on a passage. And then as I study, I try to answer all those questions. So one of the questions that I came up with as I was going through Mark here, um, this section, was why isn't Jesus more clear, right? Like, like it's there, you can build a strong case for it, but why, isn't, why doesn't he say it more clearly? And I think it's the same answer we've had earlier on. The answer is that persecution was gonna come the more clear Jesus became. And progressively, Jesus is becoming more clear in Mark. He's more clear now than he was earlier. He kind of progressively gets more and more obvious and open and, and just straightforward about his identity and his mission. Um, you know, first he's telling just the disciples. Now it's like speaking it more to a crowd, that sort of thing. But look at what happens in Mark 14. This is when Jesus is like abundantly clear. If anybody's like, well, Jesus never said it plainly, more plainly than that. Well, here it is about Jesus's identity. Um, Jesus is being asked questions by the high priest and look what happens when he finally says it super plainly. And, um, the high priest questions him, says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Are you claiming to be the Christ? And are you claiming to be the son of God? That's the, you know, remember, they're not going to say the name of God. So out loud, he's saying the blessed one. We, they all knew he was talking about God. And Jesus said, I am. Now, some translations will put this as like, you said it. But that does, it doesn't carry the strength of the, you know, in English like it does in the Greek. In the Greek, it's actually stronger than that because it's like Jesus is saying, um, uh, not only is what you said true, but I just want to point out, you said it with your own mouth, high priest, right? That, that's kind of what he's saying. He's sort of putting some um, accountability on the high priest for the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the blessed one. So that's why he goes, you said it. But some translations like the NASB here translated, I am. So Jesus just affirms straight up, I am, I am. And you're going to see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, coming with the clouds of heaven. This is going to happen. I'm going to come with the clouds of heaven. And this is a quote from Daniel. And it's a quote about the son of man, this messianic picture. But this is another passage they would have probably liked to avoid more often because it deals with the worship of the Messiah. The Messiah is actually worshiped in this passage in Daniel. So this is something that they see as a bold claim. And so what do they do? Right? Why is Jesus not more clear? Because now he's clear. Here it's totally clear. In their Jewish context, they totally know what he's doing. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. That's what happens when Jesus is clear. Jesus is being clever when he answers in ways where his 
His answer is known, but it's hard to pin him down. And here's an application I want to give us that something I never understood for many, many years of my life. Sometimes it's good to not answer questions clearly. Um, I find it irritating. If you guys know me, you know, I really want to give a open and very clear and very just that's that's what I'm like wired to do is try to give as clear of an answer as possible with things. But I'm going to suggest that there are times when just like Jesus, you should not be clear. You should give a more vague answer, be, not because you're ashamed of what you believe, but because you realize a trap is being laid for you. And in the culture we live in today, it's um, it's that much more so, right? Because people are looking for clips they can pull of, of a statement you make or of a phrase so that they can then condemn you for those things. And so when you know you're about to give one of those phrases, just ask the question, Lord, without being deceptive at all, should I, should I say this in a smarter or more clever fashion? And just let the Lord guide you. May God give you wisdom. As Jesus says, like the Holy Spirit give you wisdom to know what to answer them in that moment. But there's times where Jesus got away with stuff because he just answered really clever. And if he had just been more straightforward, it, you know, there would have been worse. Now there was a time for him to be straightforward and get crucified. But this is all about timing. It's all about God's will and God's timing. So there's no shame. There's no fear. There's just wisdom. It's just about wisdom. And so, yeah, I, I remember a guy uh, asking me one time, um, so you say, you saying I'm going to hell? And it was a coworker. And, man, and I knew it right then. He's going to be so mad at me. Like the way I answer this question, it, it, it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal. And, um, and I think I said something like, I'm saying I don't want you to go to hell, right? And that was better at least, right? And, and then, then he literally went, this was back when I was working at In-N-Out, so 20 years ago. And, um, and, and the guy actually went to everybody at, at work that day. And he's like, Mike said, I'm going to hell. Mike said, I'm going to hell. And he tells them all that. And they're like, what's wrong with you, Mike? Like, and I was like, I told him I didn't want to go and him to go. And I was, I don't think I answered it the best. Okay. To be honest, but at least it was better than if I had said, yep. Because at least in that context, he didn't care what I said. He just wanted ammo to, to get people to hate me because he was mad because he was, he was LDS, he was Mormon, and he wasn't even consistent in that. And he was living a rebellious life against God. And, and he was angry at the light being shined on him. So I, I wonder if I could have been more clever. You know, if he said, you know, Mike, are you saying I'm going to hell? I could What if I had said, what do you think scripture says about where you're going? What if I had said that and then I made him try to answer the question? That might have been a better way to do it. That might have kept that avenue open for that conversation to happen without any fear, no compromise on my side, but just realizing that I don't want to feed in to the trigger-happy attitudes that humans have when they're trying to look for a phrase they can use to condemn you. Um, on the other hand, there's always a time where you just say it and you get condemned and you don't worry about it. Um, that's fine. But at any rate, that, those are those are my uh, my tidbits. Those are my gold nuggets that I got from the Gospel of Mark here in Mark 12. We're going to be continuing in Mark 12 next Monday um, for several Mondays in a row here. There's going to be no break in the Mark series. Um, we've got next Monday talking about giving, and I'm going to deal with some myths about giving in the Christian church that we often hear from the teaching of Jesus. We're going to hopefully correct some of those myths about giving, and then also Next, the following week, we're going to start dealing with Mark 13, where Jesus is actually giving prophecy, where Jesus actually prophesies about what will happen next. This is a just this is huge. I'll be doing a lot of work and study prep, prepping for this, and I hope it's very rewarding for you guys. Um, man, this section of Mark is going to be uh, really a big deal, Mark 13. So that's coming up. And otherwise, Wednesday, I have a video coming out where it's I interviewed Dr. Douglas Moo on the Passion Translation. That video is premiering on Wednesday. I'm going to try to be there in the live chat with you guys because premiere means it was pre-recorded, but I'll 
be there. It will be playing as if it was live and I'll be there in the live chat chatting with you guys some. And then Friday will be our normal Q&A time. And that's going on. Uh, tons and tons of stuff coming this year. Um, so many things I got on deck and hoping and planning for for 2021. We'll see uh, what the Lord allows us to do. But let me uh, let me pray us out. Um, Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, your kindness, your love. We thank you for the brilliance of Christ. It's exciting that we can we can just we can read a verse and be blessed, but we can study it and get blessed and can keep studying it and learn more, understand better. And at some point, we start to see the intricate network of brilliance that the scripture is. And may we see that. May this Mark series, for those who are part of it, may it instill in them a deep appreciation for the um, unsearchable riches of your word. That your word is magnificent. That from the way it's written and the examples that are given, that it, it falls into into applying into our lives a billion times and giving us insights that just never end. We thank you for it, Lord. We praise you. We bless you. We worship you. And we pray that you'd give us vision and direction for our lives um, right now. That we would be those who don't just see what needs to be done, but we would see what kind of spiritual attitude you want us to have about the things that need to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining. Glad to get, get doing the uh, Mark series again. And um, man, that's just on a side note, me being very human again. It is, I so much prefer this to doing this Passion Translation project. It's not enjoyable to study weird, problematic teachers and teachings. Uh, it's very enjoyable and rewarding to study the scriptures and the word of God and teach that. It still needs to be done at times, of course, um, but this is more my bread and butter and what I enjoy the most. And i um, glad to have you guys with me. So take care. See you Wednesday, maybe.